Uh, if you are new with us, we're really uh, coming to the end of a series through the book of Genesis. Got three more weeks counting today. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, you can make your way to Genesis chapter 48. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some for you on that table over there. Uh, there should be some black hardback ones. If you don't own a Bible, uh, go grab one of those and keep that. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. But Genesis 48 uh, is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. Uh, now, uh, Danny Aiken, the president of my seminary, always talks about how last words are lasting words. Uh, because when somebody knows that they're about to die, uh, they're able to kind of sum up and reflect on their life and draw from all of that experience to really uh, speak some lasting words, words that have a lasting impact, words that carry a lot of weight, a lot of weight uh, and really sum up uh, what they think is important and what they think life is all about. Uh, for example, Buddha's last words were, strive without ceasing, keep working to earn your own salvation. It really summed up his life philosophy. Now, this isn't always the case. A lot of times, people's last words are pretty funny and uh, are not all that weighty. Uh, for example, Elvis's last words at his last press conference were, I hope I haven't bored you. Uh, Oscar Wilde, his last words, he was in either a hotel room or a hospital room, and he didn't like uh, the color of the wallpaper. And so his last words were, uh, either that wallpaper goes or I do. And uh, it sounds like the wallpaper won, so one zero wallpaper on that one. Uh, Louise Marie Therese, a French nun, apparently she farted, uh, and then her last words were, good, a woman who can fart uh, is not dead. Um, but I guess she probably should have said, a woman who can fart is not dead yet, uh, because those were her uh, last words as well. Uh, and so this isn't always the case, but over the next two chapters, we're going to get Jacob's last words, and uh, unlike some of these, uh, his last words are incredibly weighty. They are lasting words. Really, Jacob is going to uh, reflect over all of his life and reflect on God's grace towards him. And really, uh, he's going to speak prophetically and pronounce future blessings and prophecies on his sons and on the people of God. And so we're going to look at the first of those last words this morning here in chapter 48. We'll cover the rest next week in chapter 49. And here's how uh, we'll walk through it together this morning. We'll see first Jacob's family, and then second Jacob's blessing, and then third, finally, Jacob's God. Jacob's family, Jacob's blessing, and Jacob's God. Let's look at it together now. Genesis 48, starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession." And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. 
and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And so Joseph is told that Jacob is sick and that he's getting old. He doesn't know how much longer he has. Uh, and so he wants to bring his two boys to Jacob to, be, to meet Jacob and to be blessed by Jacob before Jacob dies. And so he brings them in to Jacob, and Jacob sits up in the bed, and he begins to reflect on his life, and he reflects on how even here he is seeing God fulfilling his promises to him. Uh, he reminds Joseph of the time when God appeared to Jacob in Genesis 28 and promised him that he would make him a great nation, a company of peoples. And Jacob is seeing and saying and pointing out here that with the birth of Joseph's two Egyptian sons, God is beginning to fulfill this promise to make him a great nation, to make them, the people of God, into a company of nations and to make their people a blessing to the whole world. Uh, because what Jacob does here is he, he literally adopts these boys into his family. They're, they're literally grandfathered in. Did you notice that? Look again at what he says in verse 5. He says, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance." 
What, what you see as you continue reading through the biblical story is that when the 12 tribes of Israel are named, Joseph is not named as one of the 12 tribes. Instead, Ephraim and Manasseh are named in his place uh, as two half-tribes. And, and so what you've got here is Jacob seeing these two Egyptian boys born in Egypt to an Egyptian mother as a sign that God is beginning to keep his promise to make the family of God a people from all the nations. So much so that he actually adopts these boys into his family and makes them a part of the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, once again, the reason God chose Israel was never simply about Israel. It was so that Israel could be a vehicle of blessing to the whole world, so that salvation could come to the whole world. And I think we're seeing that here even in Genesis 48, uh, because what we see here is that from the start, that there was never a biologically pure Israel, just made up of one nation or one ethnicity of peoples. No, from the beginning, the people of God are made up of two tribes that have Egyptian and African blood in them. I'm borrowing a little bit of language from Esau Macaulay here. He has an excellent book called Reading While Black that I would highly recommend to you. But he, he also points out that as you continue to read through the biblical story, you continue to see this. Uh, in the next book of the Bible, Exodus, when the people of God come out of slavery to Egypt, it says they come out a mixed multitude, meaning there were Egyptians uh, that believed the promises of God and uh, attached themselves to the people of God, became a part of the people of God, and left Egypt with the Israelites. Uh, later on, you see Rahab, a Canaanite, trusting the promises of God and becoming a part of God's people. Ruth, a Moabite, does the exact same thing. Uh, the people of God were always meant to be a blessing to the entire world, and the people of God were always made up of people from the nations, not just ethnic Israelites. Uh, I'm focusing on this a little bit because I think this shows us that God's heart, God's desire is for the nations, which means that ours should be as well. I, I mean, like, first off, unless there's somebody in here who's ethnically Jewish, uh, we are the nations. We are Gentiles that had to be grafted into the people of God. And, and so we should want to see others be grafted into the people of God because God's goal for all of human history is to have people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, and every nation saved by Jesus and worshiping Jesus around his throne. And so we want to send people to the nations, and we want to recognize that increasingly the nations are coming to us. We want to send people to the nations. I want you to consider if maybe God is using the language skills and the skills that you are learning in the military right now uh, to be a vehicle for you to one day go and be a missionary to people who speak that language but have not heard the good news of Jesus. I want you to consider when PCS comes up and you have options on where to go, and one of those options is a place where the gospel witness is not as prominent, I want you to consider if maybe that's God opening up an opportunity for you to, yeah, do your job, but also to be a missionary to people who have not heard the good news of Jesus. Because, like, would you pray about and consider if that's what God might be doing, if that's where God might be sending you? Because, listen, Jesus is not God for America only, and Christianity is not America's religion. 
Jesus is king over all of the earth. He, he's ruler of every tribe and language and nation, so everyone needs him. And, and so it's crucial that we take the gospel to all the nations because everyone is going to answer to Jesus. Why not take the opportunity to go be sent somewhere to make much of Jesus where he hasn't been named on Uncle Sam's dime? Really, really what I'm saying is that you and I need to see our whole lives through the lens of mission. You are not just here right now at Fort Bragg to do a job. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has you here to point people in Fort Bragg and Fayetteville to Jesus, to make much of Jesus to the people that God has put you into contact with. And when you get sent somewhere else, that mission doesn't change, that just changes addresses. And look, here at Veritas, we want to embody this reality that the gospel creates. Uh, we are not after diversity for diversity's sake. Hell is going to be a really diverse place. No, we are after bearing witness to the reality that the gospel creates, that Jesus saves people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Like, this is God's mission for the world, and I don't want us to miss out on it. He's going to accomplish it with us or without us, whether we step into it or not, but I don't want us to miss out on it. I want us to step into it. We want to show that the gospel is just bigger than what divides us politically or culturally or socioeconomically, that, that a gospel that Jesus can bring diverse peoples together like nothing else and no one else can. We want to bear witness to this reality. This is what we see uh, in Jacob adopting these boys and bringing them into his family. Uh, but the next thing we see in this text is Jacob's blessing uh, that he gives to these boys. Because Jacob eventually, he tells Joseph to bring these boys near so that he can bless them. Uh, and then the scene gets uh, a little funny. Uh, now, I think we're meant to remember uh, what happened when Jacob dressed up like his brother Esau and stole and deceived his father Isaac to get his father's, to get his father's blessing because there are some important similarities here. Just like his father Isaac, uh, Jacob is not able to see as well anymore. And just like it was with Jacob and Esau, the younger is blessed more than the older. Uh, but even with those important similarities, I, I think there are some important differences here as well. Uh, because Joseph takes these boys up to Jacob, and, and he makes it so that Manasseh, the older son, will be by Jacob's right hand, uh, and so that Ephraim, the younger son, will be by Jacob's left hand. Uh, someone's right hand was a symbol of power and authority and blessing and strength. Uh, and so Joseph wants Manasseh, his firstborn, to get the lion's share of Jacob's blessing because this is how the world worked at this time. This is who was viewed as valuable and important and successful. This is who the family passed on through, through the firstborn son. This is what everyone does at this time, but it's not what Jacob does, right? He instead crosses his arms so that his right hand is on Ephraim, the younger's head, uh, and his left hand is on Manasseh, the older son's head. And Joseph gets a little bit frustrated about this. He actually tries to interrupt the ceremony and physically take his dad's hand off of uh, Ephraim's head and try to put it on Manasseh's head. 
uh, probably thinking that he got confused just because he can't see very well, and he got the boys mixed up. But Jacob stops him, and he says, no, I, I didn't get the boys mixed up. I know that this is your firstborn, and this is what you want, but this isn't the way we're going to do it. This is how God is going to bless. Now, I think what we're seeing here is that finally, at the end of his life, Jacob is beginning to understand how God's grace works. As we've walked through Jacob's story, we've seen that for the vast majority of his life, Jacob has treated God's grace as something that you have to scheme for, something that you have to work your way into, something that you have to earn by being smarter and more cunning than everybody else. Uh, But over and over, God has broken him and has shown him that his grace does not come into people's lives that way. God's grace is not something you can earn. It's not something you do enough good things to deserve. It's not something you can scheme your way into. You just have to receive it in weakness. And finally, at the end of his life, Jacob is beginning to get it. You see this in the way he acts in faith to uh, line up with the purposes of God here. He understands what God is doing here and acts prophetically to bless the younger instead of the older. Uh, In fact, in Hebrews 11, uh, the author of Hebrews singles this moment out, Jacob blessing these two boys and then the rest of his sons in chapter 49 as his great act of faith. Jacob is getting it because we have seen this theme of God's grace coming to the one who does not deserve it uh, instead of the one who is important in the eyes of the world over and over again in the book of Genesis. Uh, It's old, barren Sarah instead of the young, fertile Hagar who is given the son of promise in her old age when she was way past menopause and it was way past possible for this to happen. Uh, It's Jacob, the younger, the deceiver, the trickster, the trash bag of a person who is chosen and blessed by God instead of Esau, his older brother. It's ugly, neglected Leah instead of beautiful Rachel that is chosen to continue the line of promise on. It's unrighteous Judah chosen to continue the line of promise instead of righteous Joseph. And as you continue in the biblical story, you just continue to see this. God is trying to beat it into our heads that his grace flows to the weak, to the sinful, to the marginalized, to the undeserving, because that's who actually gets it. That's who actually understands that it's grace, that they haven't done anything to earn it, and that they can't deserve it. Jacob finally understands and lives into the reality that grace upends and rejects what the world looks at as valuable and important and successful. And 1 Corinthians says that God does this to take away any ground for boasting so that anyone who would boast would boast in the Lord. You see, when you and I think God loves me and he saved me because I'm just smarter than other people, or I'm more gifted than other people, or I'm more successful than other people, or God can just use me more than he can use other people, we're living out of step with reality, with the way that reality actually works. Because God does not need his people to have status and power and worldly success to work through them. He has the power. And so, so much of the Christian life is learning like Jacob to live into this reality of grace, the reality that God saved you and he loves you simply because he loves you. 
that there's nothing you've done to force his hand, learning that every good thing you have in your life is a gift of his grace that you did not earn and you do not deserve, that everything you have is something that you received, that there's no ground in you to boast in yourself at all. The more you and I will live into this reality of God's grace, the more we will flourish. And the way that we do that is by seeing more of Jacob's God. Look back with me at the text in verses 15 and 16. It says, And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So what Jacob is understanding at the end of his life is the character of this gracious God. I mean, listen again to what he says. He calls God the one who has shepherded him, shepherded him all the days of his life, the one who has redeemed him from all evil. This is the first time in the Bible that God is referred to as a shepherd. And what do shepherds do? They guide the sheep, they lead the sheep, they protect the sheep, they feed the sheep, they watch over the sheep and provide for them. And Jacob is saying God has done that for him every day of his life. But not just that, he says God has been the one who has redeemed him from all evil. Now what's interesting about Jacob being able to say that is when you put it in context with what we know about his life, right? Because in many ways, his life has been terrible, has it not? He, he grew up being the neglected son of his father. Then he had to flee into exile for over 20, for 20 years while his brother Esau wanted to murder him. He was deceived by his uncle Laban and had to slave away for him for 20 years. He lost his favorite wife that he loved. She died in childbirth. He lost a son that he thought was dead for over 20 years. And that's not even talking about all the evil and shadiness that he pulled on other people. That's just what, he, what had happened to him. Yet Jacob is saying through all of that, God had a purpose and was shepherding him, was redeeming all the evils of his life, both the evils he did to others and the evils that were done to him. But God is never the cause and he's never the author of evil, but he is so sovereign that he has used all the evils of Jacob's life to weave a beautiful story of redemption in his life. God used the evils to finally transform Jacob into a person who lived by trusting in God's grace rather than in his own abilities to scheme and get ahead. None of his suffering was wasted. Through it all, God was shepherding him, leading him, and transforming him into a person who lived by his grace, who knew that God was worthy of his trust. This is the God that Jacob is asking to bless these boys, and this is the God that Joseph has brought these boys to, to receive the blessing from. Because, yeah, while Joseph does not totally get it, in, in a lot of ways he's still thinking in terms of the world's categories of what's important and valuable and successful by wanting to get the firstborn uh, to have the lion's share of the blessing, that doesn't mean that Joseph is totally in the wrong here. Uh, because Joseph bringing these boys to Jacob to receive a blessing from God is a deep act of faith on his part as well. 
Because he wants these boys to belong to the family of God. He wants this God to be their God. And just remember, who is Joseph now? He's the ruler. He's the second in command of all of Egypt. All the wealth and power and status of Egypt is at his disposal. In the world's measures of success, he can set these boys up for life. Like whatever they might want, he could get it for them. Yet he wants them to receive this blessing from Jacob. It'd be somewhat like LeBron James coming to you and saying, hey, will you take my kids in for a while and will you pay for them to go to private school and will you coach them in basketball? Like, listen, he doesn't need that from you. He's got just a little bit more money and a little bit more basketball ability than you. Joseph has all the wealth of Egypt at his disposal. What he asks here and what he does here, it makes absolutely no sense unless Joseph is absolutely convinced that the promises of God and God himself is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. And he is. Hebrews 11 says this about Moses, but it's true of Joseph as well. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Joseph trades the wealth and status of Egypt for these boys to be in the family of God because he wants these boys to know the God of Israel. And look, it's the same option on the table for us. It's the same choice that we have to make. We can spend our days pursuing uh, the wealth and the status and the pleasures of the world, or, or we can have the blessing of knowing the God of Israel. And, and look, I, I just encourage you uh, to follow Joseph's example here, because what he seems to have figured out is that chasing the world's status and approval and pleasures uh, is really like running on a hamster wheel. No matter how fast you run, no matter how hard you chase it, you're not actually getting any closer. You're just wearing yourself out. Because the great lie that our culture tells us is that the key to happiness is found in looking inside of yourself to find out who you are and then expressing that identity to the world. The, the great lie is that the most important thing you need to do is to go down and find yourself, and, and then once you find yourself, to be yourself and express that identity without, anybody, without letting anybody tell you different. And But surely you found out by now that the weight of having to define your own identity and meaning and purpose in life is so exhausting. That's a weight you're just not going to be able to bear. Surely you've seen that trying to buy your way into an identity or post your way into one or work your way into one just doesn't work. Like, when is it ever enough? When do you buy something and finally feel satisfied? When do you post something and finally feel seen and validated? How long does the joy last of getting a promotion or uh, accomplishing some achievement, how long does that last before it sets in uh, that you're just going to have to continue to compete to measure up to this new standard? When do you get done watching Netflix and finally feel rested? When have you self-medicated with alcohol or with porn or with Netflix or with video games or with doom scrolling or with shopping or with looking on Zillow and felt satisfied 
in your soul. Like the weight of having to make your own happiness and meaning and identity and purpose in life is just so crushing. But there's a way out. You can get off the hamster wheel if you want to. You can, like Joseph does here with his boys, you can trade the pursuit of chasing the pleasures of the world and having an, to make an identity for yourself. You can trade that pursuit to have God, to know God. Like if you want this God to be your God, you can have him. And the best news is that you actually don't have to go out and find him because he has already come to find you. Maybe you noticed uh, when Jacob blesses these boys, he says, the first two times he says God, uh, and then the third time he says the angel uh, who has redeemed me from all evil bless these boys. Now, this angel has come up before in the book of Genesis. It, it could also be translated messenger. And what we learn about this angel or messenger is that in some ways he is uh, distinct from God and he is sent from God, but uh, in, in many other ways he is equal with God. He acts and speaks for God. God's name, his character is in him. He's referred to as God. People call him God, uh, and he is equated with God. And, and you even see J Jacob do that here in his prayer. He equates this angel uh, with the God who, before whom his fathers walked and with the God uh, that has been his shepherd all the days of his life. I mean, you know who he's talking about, right? Jesus. The, the God before whom his fathers walked is Jesus. The God who has been his shepherd every day of his life is Jesus. The God who has redeemed him from all evil is Jesus. This, Jesus is this good shepherd that Jacob is praying to here, and here's how good of a shepherd he is. In the fullness of time, the fullness of time, this good shepherd came down to earth, took on our flesh, and became a lamb. He became the lamb of God who freely chose to take all of our evil upon himself and pay for all of it to redeem it. He became the one who stood in our place, the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. We were the lost sheep. We had gone astray, so he came down to search us out and bring us home. And because he has done this, he can, just like Joseph does here with his boys, he can act as a mediator and lead us by the hand to his father. We can, and just like Ephraim and Manasseh, we can be adopted into the family of God. Just like Jacob does with these boys, we now, through Jesus, hear God the Father say over us, now she is mine, now he is mine. We receive a share of the inheritance. We receive the blessing and grace of God. We are Ephraim and Manasseh in this story. We are Gentiles who are outside of the family of God. Ephesians 2 says that we were uh, without hope and without God in the world, but now we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now through Jesus, we belong. We have a place in God's family. These promises are now our promises. This God is now our God. And this is really incredible news because the reason that the gospel is good news is not ultimately because you and I get things, it's because ultimately you and I get God. 
that the God of Israel becomes our God. And the way that we learn to, like Jacob, live into the grace of God is by getting our eyes on this God. You see, because we don't, we worship our way into sin, we have to worship our way out of it. The way out of sin is not through applying better techniques, but by getting our eyes on the beauty and the worth and the value of God. Because when you get your heart set on the beauty and value and worth of God, sin loses its power in your life, and you begin to live by the reality of God's grace. And if you want to know where to look to see God, to know God, Genesis 48 is telling us, you look at Jesus. He is the invisible God made visible. He is God in the flesh. He is the good shepherd who has come to find you. He is the one who shows us what God is really like. He puts the grace and love and kindness of God on display in human flesh so that we can all see it. Look, there's, there's no secret sauce to the Christian life. Growing in the Christian life, this walking with Jesus in discipleship, it's this twofold work of every day rejecting the lies of sin and putting our sin to death and then getting our eyes on Jesus, fixing our hearts on his glory and majesty and worth because when you get your heart set on the grace and love of God and Jesus, more and more you're gonna become a gracious person. More and more you're going to become a loving person because you become like what you look at what you fix your attention on, what you give your attention to. And and so I want to encourage you to step into this. Uh, I want to get really simple and practical with this. Uh, Maybe this week you start by just taking 10 minutes, one morning or evening, to do nothing but just get your eyes on the beauty and majesty and worth of Jesus in the gospel. Like, get really basic with it. Make it an appointment in your phone so it's an appointment that you won't miss. Like, Tuesday morning or Thursday night at 10 o'clock or 7 in the morning, for example, I'm just going to spend 10 to 15 minutes doing nothing but getting my heart happy in Jesus, getting my eyes set on Jesus and the love he has for me and what he's done for me in the gospel. And look, if that sounds intimidating to you, if you don't know, if you're like, I don't know what I would think about for 10 minutes, And just just pick one of the four Gospels and start reading and use that time to read and think and pray about what you're reading. But just get to know Jesus. Just stare at him until you see the glory. I promise you, if you'll do that, if you'll get your eyes on Jesus, if you start seeing his glory, you will change. He will begin to transform you. This God that Jacob prayed to, he came down and he laid down his life to make us his friends. And so what a waste it would be to spend our lives going to church and doing religious activities without ever actually experiencing friendship with this God. Look, he is the God who will be your shepherd every day of your life. He is the God who will redeem you from all evil And he is the God who will be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Friendship with him is here if you want it. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you for this good news that your heart has always been for the nations, that we, people from among the nations, 
without God, without hope in the world, alienated, far off, strangers to the promises of God, strangers to the covenants of grace, strangers to everything, uh, everything connected with you, you have brought near through the blood of your son. Jesus, thank you that you have come and like Joseph have been the mediator to bring us back to God. And so, Father, we ask uh, this week that you would do this work in us, that you would make us a people who live by trusting in your grace because we live fixing our eyes on you as our God. God, you are the greatest gift of the gospel. You are the good news of the gospel that we get you and that you are our God and we are your people. So please, God, don't let us settle for anything else. Don't let us settle for any lesser pleasures, any lesser pursuits. God, would you give us the grace to be a people who are hungry for you, who want to know you, who want to walk with you all of our days, just like you will walk with us, all of ours. And so, Jesus, I pray you'd begin doing this in our hearts, even in this moment as we respond. In your name, amen.